Hi, welcome to my channel. My name is Lisa Alistway and I create fun, inspirational and informational videos you can use and apply to your life. Today's topic is binge eating disorder. But before we get into it, please hit the subscribe button and the bell to be alerted when the next video drops. Okay, let's get started. It is my honor to introduce Dr. Karen Honig, who is a registered and licensed dietitian in Houston, Texas. She is one of the first dietitians in Texas to operate a nutritional counseling private practice specializing in eating disorders. She has helped thousands of individuals who are recovering and have recovered from eating disorders and healing their relationship with food and body image. I will be linking her website information in the box below. Karen, welcome. Would you like to include anything else with regards to your background and experience and choosing eating disorders as a career field? First of all, thank you so much for having me on today. What a privilege and honor to be a part of this exciting YouTube channel. Um, so in terms of anything else I'd like to add, um, I've been in private practice for about 25 years. And I have to say what an honor and a privilege it has been to work with thousands of clients who have allowed me into their lives, right? Nutrition, food, body image is so personal and so individual. And what a privilege to be able to step into the place of their, their space and their lives and to be a part of that. Because it takes such, um, they have to really trust me you know, and bring down the walls for me to help them heal. So it has been a, such an exciting 25 years. And then also to watch the field of eating disorders evolve. When I first went in um, to the work of eating disorders, there were no treatment centers in Houston. There were no residential treatment centers in Texas. We had to send our patients outside of Texas. Now Houston has to um, IOP PHP programs. There's probably 20 dietitians in private practice. We've learned so much. The DSM-5 changed and added different um, eating disorders into the diagnostic codes. So it's really an exciting field. Um, we know so much more, we've evolved and we can help treat patients so much better. Yes, and I just want to provide a disclaimer. The purpose of this video is for educational purposes and is not intended for medical advice. So we're hoping that um, with this video, it perhaps can provide a tool or a discussion that you can take with you to when you see your doctor the next time, mm -hmm. if you think you have a binge eating disorder. Absolutely. And if I could add, there's absolutely no shame, you know, in having a mental illness, an eating disorder, any type of addiction. Um, I am in recovery. I had an eating disorder in a time when nobody even knew what anorexia or bulimia was. Mm -hmm. um, I was a tennis player on the junior circuit and I, I started that at 13 years old. And so as a nationally ranked tennis player, you know, in a very, in a stress bubble. And so my coping mechanism was, um, eating disorder behaviors and nobody talked about it then. Nobody knew what it was, you know? So I had this very shameful secret mm. and there, there is no shame in being human and having problems and needing help. Yes, yes. So your story is very inspirational and 
I'm glad that there are a lot of tools and resources available today. And um, it's tough if you didn't, if you grew up at a time when that wasn't available. But uh, you are proof that people can recover. Okay, okay, so let's go ahead and begin. Um, as you guys know, this last year has been very challenging for everybody with the pandemic. And I just wanted to bring to your attention the latest American Psychological Association report. Uh, it's titled, let me make sure I get the title right here, Stress in America, One Year Later, A New Wave of Pandemic Health. There is a lot of key findings in this report, but I wanna highlight just a couple because I think it's relevant to today's discussion. One of the key findings, and this is just in a year's time, keep in mind people, that approximately six in 10 adults experienced undesirable weight gain just in the last year. It was approximately 61% of us. And if you were to break it down by groups, millennials, and that's ages 25 to 42, they reported the highest undesirable weight gain of any group with an average weight gain of 41 pounds. So I'll be linking this report down in the description box below if you would like to read it. But this is very alarming. I think a lot of us are not surprised. We might be surprised by the actual numbers that are coming out though. Hmm. But um, to start off, I really want to differentiate between overeating and binge eating disorder. So Karen, can you uh, do that? No, that's a great question because I often hear people say, oh, I binged last night or I, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I always, like uh, gives me this gut, you know, gut reaction, like, no, you probably overate. And that's pretty, that's a normal, you know, that's normal to overeat sometimes. Yeah. That's part of the definition of normal eating is overeating sometimes. Um, but there is a difference. And overeating is just like I said, overeating, you, you feel it when you overeat, you know, maybe you go to a Mexican restaurant and there's um, tortillas and dip chips and dips and then fajitas and then, you know, margaritas and, and you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm really full. I overate, right? Mm -hmm. Binging is a numbing, addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. when, binging is out of control. Eating until the food is either done or you are so full that you are physically sick or uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, binging is a, it's a psychological problem, right? It is in the DSM-5, it's binge eating disorder. And, um, and there are certain criteria that one has to meet in order to be diagnosed with binge eating disorder. So the, I, I love that you asked that question because there is a difference between overeating mm -hmm. and binge eating. Yes, I, I assume with the from this report, a lot of this is overeaters and not necessarily people with binge eating disorder. Agree. And when I read that report, I had the same thought that then um, the way they they phrased it, undesirable weight gain. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a really tough year, a lot of stress. It makes sense that people turn to food for comfort and for other reasons, and that weight gain was the end result. Yes. Yes. Um, so. When we talk about binge eating disorder, can you describe what a binge is? So a binge is different for every person. Um, I lead a binge eating disorder support group and you know each one of them, their binge is different. Um, but in order to be diagnosed with binge eating disorder, mm -hmm. uh, there are different criteria. And the first criteria is recurrent episodes of binge eating. Mm -hmm 
which is eating within any two hour period, an amount of food that is definitely larger than what most people would eat in a similar amount of time under similar situations. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of lack of control overeating during this particular episode or these particular episodes. So that's one criteria. Um, and then the second criteria is that episodes are associated with three or more of the following rapid eating, eating until uncomfortably full, eating large amounts of food, mm -hmm. eating alone, and then feeling disgusted, depressed, or guilty after eating, after eating a bit, having a binge. Yes. So that's two. Then there's marked distress regarding binge eating. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of amounts or timing, the binge eating occurs um, on average at least once per week for three months. And wow. then finally, the binge eating episodes do not have the component of purging, right? right. So that would, that would be bulimia, correct? Right, so purging mm -hmm. would be in the form of vomiting or even purging with exercise. But in binge eating disorder, um, when they over eat beyond what they want to eat and need, mm -hmm. then they just go right into guilt and shame versus Correct. And um, yeah, some of my clients will report that, um, you know, even they will vomit, but they're not making themselves vomit. Right. I mean, they've just eaten right. so much to the point of such discomfort right. that their, yeah, their lives and their health are really affected. Right. And we want to point out that it's it's not about food. Food is the coping mechanism. So when somebody's triggered with some life event that creates distress or sadness or depression or frustration, the coping mechanism they choose is food. And the food does provide temporary relief. And it can also provide energy, depending what they eat. But it doesn't last. And that's mm -hmm. the issue here. And then, it, then the cycle goes guilt, shame. And then again, life event. We all are going to have these life stressors throughout our life that we have to address. Right. You know, and it is so physiological too. Stress, you know, decreases certain neurotransmitters like dopamine, mm -hmm. serotonin, melatonin. Um, and those are your serotonin and dopamine are your feel good drugs, right? When we see a puppy or if we hold a new newborn, we get a flood of dopamine. Yeah. So during stress, those neurotransmitters, those hormones are decreased. What does food give you, especially hyperpalatables, which are starchy, fatty foods, salty foods, those give you chocolate. dopamine. Yeah, chocolate. Chocolate <laughs> releases dopamine. Yes. And so your body physiologically is saying, give me dopamine, make me feel yeah. better. And so when you eat and binge, the dopamine floods and you do feel numb. Yes. Temporary, temporarily. Yes. And it's, it's those cravings, those salty, sweet, sugary cravings that we want in those stressful times. Very rarely are we craving broccoli or cauliflower when we're stressed. And so we have to be very mindful of this cycle and what's happening. Right. And I think it's important to be mindful of the situation. Like I am stressed, you know, this is a stressful time. Yes. We're in the midst of a pandemic you know, life has changed. Okay. To be very aware of that and grab all of your coping mechanisms. If you're vulnerable to binge eating or addiction. 
-hmm. right? That to really recognize, okay, yeah, I'm stressed or I'm angry or I'm lonely or I'm bored. Mm -hmm. What do I need to do to keep myself really healthy? Because I'm so vulnerable right now. Exactly, exactly. Um, so we know the statistics that it affects women more than it affects men. And um, we see it across all the age groups from adolescence, maybe childhood, and all the way up until your elderly years. People can have binge eating disorder for a lifetime. But the good news is, which we'll talk about later, is there is recovery and there is treatment. Um, and so we'll talk about some of the success stories that uh, Karen has worked with. Okay, so um, what are some of the health risks associated with binge eating disorder? So the health risks are very similar uh, or are the same as when a person is experiencing obesity, you know, extreme obesity, morbid obesity. Um, we see high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, gallbladder disease, um, joint pain, sleep apnea a lot. Some of my clients have been experiencing lately, and I, this is kind of new. I guess it's not new. Maybe they're just able to vocalize it now that they're having open wounds and mm. rashes and sores, um, a, a lot of anxiety and depression, mm -hmm. um, and a really poor, poor quality of life. If you think about how people in living in larger bodies, if they are living in a larger body, have experienced the world, our, our world is not very kind mm -hmm. to people in larger bodies. So if the binge eating, you know, is causing them to live in a larger body, um, they will report really having a poor quality of life. Yeah, probably, you know, due to a lot of the stigma, stigmas and discrimination associated with that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's, it's not, you know, it's just tough. Having an eat, any type of eating disorder is just, it's brutal. But some eating disorders are glamorized, right? When someone has anorexia, they're oftentimes praised, right? Yes, yes. I grew up, I'm Generation X, you may remember this. I grew up in the early 90s when Kate Moss, who was uh, known for her heroin chic body, very, yes. very skinny, and that was glamorized and promoted as an yes. ideal during that time in the early nine days. Absolutely, I remember Kate Moss, right? She was uh, a waif, right? But very, very much drug, drug addicted. Yeah, and um, the beauty, the beauty norms or what is considered beautiful has changed. It, it used to be Marilyn, right? Well, it used to be Marilyn Monroe who was beautiful, curvy, and then came Twiggy. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's, it's been back and forth. And, yeah. yeah. Yep, yeah. And today absolutely. I'm I'm happy to see more representations of a normal healthy body weight in advertisements and so on. I think that's a a positive message to send to young girls and and to anybody struggling with body image issues. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You touched on the statistics and um I don't know if you would you like to hear some of the statistics. So, binge eating disorder is actually the most prevalent eating disorder. Yes. Of all of the eating disorders, um, it is it is recognized in the DSM-5, which is our manual of mental disorders, mental illnesses, and um, it is the most prevalent. It's the hardest to treat, I believe, and because people tip, you know, this is kind of making generalization, but it's a long road, right? Yeah. Recovery is a very long road, and 
it's not life-threatening like anorexia and bulimia are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and a lot of times people want the quick fix. You know, they want, let, let me just lose the weight. Let me just have gastric bypass. Yeah. And then that's not the answer. Doing the work is the answer. Right. But binge eating disorder is very prevalent. It's the most common eating disorder. Um, I have my statistics, let's see, about 3.5% of American women and 2% of men and up to 1.6% of all adolescents suffer with uh, binge eating disorder. And total is about 3 million Americans struggle with binge eating disorder. And, and that's, that's what's reported. Could yes, it could be higher, right. That's a great point because people have a lot of shame and they don't want to come in, you know, because our society looks at it as, well, just, just diet, just lose weight, just stop eating. Yeah. Just go out and exercise. If it was, if it was that simple. Correct. And it's not, it is, you know, it's very hard. Um, our brains are very wired for um, habit, right? 99% of what we do is based on habit. And it's hard to change. Luckily, our brain is very neuroplastic. It can change, but it takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So, but people are hesitant to come in with binge eating disorder because so much of society says it's just a lack of control or right. these people are very lazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of shame involved in binge, binge eating. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to point out that there is another name that you might have heard binge eating disorder as compulsive overeating. It's another common term that people use. Um, so let's talk about some contributing factors. What's what's driving this? Um, starting with social cultural factors, we touched on you know the media and the models, and that being one factor that we grew up with in our time. Um, what are some other social cultural factors contributing to binge eating disorder? Yeah. So the social cultural, there is a, a, a lot of pressure. This is kind of repeating what we said, but a lot of pressure to obtain a certain body type. Mm-hmm. And when one doesn't fit into that body type, they may be bullied, shamed. Um, they don't feel like they fit in. They might feel awkward. I have a lot of clients who say, You know, when I grew up, all my friends were these little skinny, you know, just genetically, these little skinny twigs. And I developed and I developed breasts and, you know, I grew and and I was going into puberty way before everybody else. And nobody tells boys and girls how hard puberty is, you know, and that girls are going to go out and get hair and stuff, you know, whereas boys are going up. And so... um, so the feeling of not maybe not fitting into society's standards or society's pressure or what their friends look like, uh, social media and marketing is just brutal. Especially on- the diet industry. It's a it's a multi billion dollar industry that targets um, people's weaknesses, um, maybe naivety, and mm-hmm. of course their wallet. Um, and so you have to watch out for the the unscrupulous diet industry diet industry is oh my goodness brutal the diet and beauty industry yes and there's always a new diet out there and it looks so promising and so enticing yes and um so that's social and then um the the normalcy of diet culture which is just what you said that you know kinderbursting kindergartners bringing in diet coke or talking about 
I can't have that, you know, that's too much sugar, or I'm not going to bring in a cupcake because that I'm not going to eat that. That's got too much sugar. You right. Know, kindergartners. Yeah. Mm. So that's a society, you know, places a large. Um, there's also, right, of course, like the Barbie dolls. I mean, it starts young. Yes. It starts with fairy tales, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, you know, these very, very thin yes. uh, fairy tales. And then it goes on to Barbie and then the models and it just keeps going on. And that that's a lot. I think it's been reported that we get 2000 media messages at yes. least per day. Yes, and, and it even targets men. Um, you look at the action figures of GI Joe from the 1970s, he's kind of of normal weight and frame to being superhero muscular strengths, impossible to obtain without steroids. Um, so yes, men are targeted, young boys are targeted, targeted as well as girls. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't know if you've seen, well, I'm sure you have seen the ads where the, um, you know, men, their their muscles, right, are so defined and their pants are really low. And yeah, yeah it's a it's a lot of pressure. So yeah. this society is it's a big um, contributing factor to binge eating disorder, all eating disorders. Yes. I always like to say culture is not your friend. Go counter culture. A lot of times what culture is trying to sell you and you know tell you these are your values and norms, it's probably just the opposite. So go counterculture. Um, another contributing factor is interpersonal and psychological factors. Can you touch on that? Yeah, yeah. So typically a person who develops an eating disorder is really a, a deep feeler, a strong feeler, an empath, right? Which is a beautiful thing to have, to be a deep feeler. Um, but it's also can be dangerous in terms of self-preservation. So someone who might get teased, right? For someone who is not an empath, those, that teasing would go right over their head, you know, or, well, you know, oh, go away. But for an so empath- So you're talking about people who are super sensitive. Super sensitive, yes. Yes, super sensitive. Uh, that is one of the interpersonal psychological factors. Um, perhaps they have low self-esteem right? So they're feeling insecure. Um, and maybe then they don't look like what society expects them to look like. So all these, it's kind of like the perfect storm. Yeah. Maybe they have depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have a, a lack of coping skills. They haven't been taught or it hasn't been modeled how to, how to really take care of yourself, how to cope with life's difficulties. Um, perhaps they have difficulty expressing their feelings, mm -hmm. right? Um, Perhaps they have a history of trauma or abuse. Mm -hmm. And then um, perhaps they have, we see a lot of OCD, obsessive behavior, compulsive behavior, perfectionism, mm -hmm. um, sensitivity, just like you said. So you take these factors, they might not have all of these interpersonal factors, but maybe they have some. And then you add society's pressure. Yeah. Yes. And then the, the final one, which I know you'll, you'll mention. Yeah. I just want to touch on what you were oh, saying, yeah. poor coping skills and the poor communication skills. Um, sometimes people fall under this category of being people pleasers. They have yes. difficulty saying no to other people, yes. but they also have difficulty saying no to themselves. The boundaries are broken on both ends there and it, they have to do the work to repair that so that they can um, build their confidence and build their communication skills. 
Absolutely. Uh, boundaries is a huge word and it's such an important part of life. It's, it is, it is being able to say, okay, you know what, this is what I will allow in my life and this is what I won't allow. And people have to respect my boundaries. Yes. And you yeah. are the one in charge of enforcing those boundaries. That's the Correct. key thing here too. Um, the third contributing factor I'd like to touch on is biological and bio biochemical factors. Yeah. So this is an area that's not well researched. They've been doing a lot of research on the biochemical, biological uh, factors, genetic factors. They've done a lot of studies on twins, twins that both have eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, like I said, the research is, it's pretty new, it's young, but they are showing genetic links. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we will see that, um, there's a family history of eating disorders. We'll say family history of binge eating, passed down, you know, mother to daughter. And then, so if you also, if you take the brain and the genetic predisposition, plus then the family environment, yes. right? Yes. And watching your mom have her coping mechanisms and that's what you're seeing and that's what you're, you're adapting to. Um, there's also chemical imbalances that are genetic and the chemical imbalances that directly relate to hunger, appetite, and satisfaction or uh, satiety. Mm -hmm. So there is a genetic component for sure. Just like we know that if you have a schizophrenic parent, one parent, there's a 50% chance you're going to have schizophrenia. Both parents have schizophrenia. Yeah. So it's the same. There's, it, there's a genetic link to eating disorders, addictions. Or when people say, um, when you, if you have parents or grandparents that are alcoholics, you have to be really careful because you mm -hmm. might have that gene. Mm -hmm. Same with eating disorders. Yes, yeah, so there's kind of a nature nurture. Both of them come at play here. Yeah, yep. So you take the genetic, the sociocultural, and then the interpersonal, and it is a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. And then there's usually something that is, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Something right. sets them down that, that pathway. Right. And I like that you touched on the brain and eating disorders, but I'd like to point out there's, we know very little about the brain. There's, we need much more research to see what's really going on and how things are operating. Uh, one thing that we used to think about the brain is that we thought serotonin was made in the brain. And then we mm -hmm. found out, no, the majority of serotonin is made in your gut. Mm -hmm. And so we were treating the brain when, without, treat, without treating the gut. And this is obviously causes problems. Mm -hmm. And they so work together, you know, that, you know, that you get the yeah. gut feeling, there's a reason that because the, this brain and this brain are yeah. working together constantly. Yes. And a lot of times people shut down, they shut down their instincts when they shouldn't, or they detach and shut down their thoughts and their feelings when they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, so that also creates the perfect storm. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so let's get into recovery and treatment. Um, I know from your background and your experience, you are, you advocate multidisciplinary approaches. And uh, can you go ahead and speak on that a little bit? Absolutely. It, it really takes a village, right? One clinician can't do it all and, and shouldn't. It, it takes a whole team approach to help someone recover from an eating disorder. And it starts with a medical doctor. A medical doctor has to be involved because there's complications no matter what 
what spectrum, what side of the eating disorder you're on, you, you need a medical doctor involved, monitoring the labs, monitoring your health mm-hmm. with no shame and judgment. It's all, right. you know, this is it. This is what the person has. This is what they're struggling with. And so we pick doctors who really understand eating disorders and that are compassionate and kind. And if someone comes in with an open wound, you know, okay, you know what, let's, let's treat it with kindness and compassion. Okay, so the doctor psychiatrist um, for the meds. And again, the, the psychiatrist is one that kn- knows and understands eating disorders because they're so complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes the psychiatrist will say, you know, these meds aren't gonna work until the, the person is stabilized nutritionally. So dietitian has to be involved, a registered licensed dietitian. Yeah, not a nutritionist. He's not a nutritionist. Can you tell the difference for the audience between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist? Absolutely. It's a big difference. Um, So a registered dietitian, nutritionist, RDN, has gone through years of undergraduate work, undergraduate training, uh, very specific classes, nutrition classes, metabolism classes, medical nutrition, MNT classes. Um, all the sciences, biology, microbiology, anatomy, physiology. Mm -hmm. So they finish a four-year degree in nutrition, and then they are eligible to apply for an internship. And the internship is at least eight months. It could be a year. It depends on the program. And the internship is in hospitals, in private practices, in food service industries, all the different nutrition industries. And then after they finish their internship, they're eligible to sit for their board exams. And that, so then when they complete all of that, they become a registered dietitian. Licensed, yes. Well, licensure is based on states. Not all states are licensed. Texas is a licensure state. We have to be licensed in Texas, but other states don't require require license. Um, But RD, you have to be the registered dietitian to practice nutrition anywhere in the United States. Yes. So make sure they have those credentials behind their name. And you want to find, you know, if you're going to get help, which I so encourage, find a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders. Yes. So that you don't go into, let's say, a hospital dietitian who who means well and is a great clinical dietitian, but doesn't understand, you know, eating disorders and might, you know, inadvertently put you on a diet or a meal plan, right, which is maybe not the right uh, treatment at that time. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so um, a medical doctor, psychiatrist, who is a medical doctor too, a dietitian, therapist, a licensed LPC, licensed professional counselor or social worker, licensed social worker, Mm -hmm. again, who understands eating disorders. because it is not about food, it's not about weight, it's all the underlying issues that we've discussed, all the, the issues of not feeling good enough, not feeling smart enough, not feeling enough, and then finding this coping mechanism. Yes, I wanna to touch on that real quickly about the importance of identifying and recognizing feelings. Um, there is a great tool, it's a color wheel of emotions, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll, yep. I'll put a link in the description box for those who don't know. But oftentimes people uh, might be emotionally illiterate when it comes to describing how they feel. May, they may only know sad, mad, and happy. And they don't dig deeper. They don't go into, well, well, why am I sad? Well, 
I'm sad because I was humiliated or I was confused or, you know, you have to dig deeper into those not so good feelings. And a lot of times people don't want to do that. They don't want to, what I say is feel the feels and you got to feel the feels to get better. And um, I think something like this tool, the emotion wheel helps you name the demon so that you can tame the demon. Yeah. And feelings are for feeling. Yes. Right? Feelings are for feeling. Yeah. And we learn, and you know, so when someone has binge eating disorder, the, the feelings that come up are numbed with food, Yes. right? Or if there's a trigger, I don't want to go there. I don't want to feel that feeling. You know, I know what, what's going to numb me and take me away. Um, one of my clients last night said now that she's in recovery, she has so much time, so much more time. Before she, you know, numbed herself, she had no time because all of her time was spent thinking about food, how was she going to get food, then binging on food, and then feeling awful. So feeling the feelings and being able to process those, those feelings. Yes. Particularly with the therapist, because those feelings can be really strong. And yeah. You need somebody to help you navigate it. You know, again, no shame, no judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, find a therapist that is compassionate and kind and understands and specializes in eating disorders that can help you kind of get to the root cause. And you know, feelings are, can be horrible and they're fleeting. That's the good news and the bad news. The good ones come in and they also leave, but the bad ones come in, but they can also leave. So uh, sometimes you just have to ride those feelings and a therapist can definitely help you navigate that. Absolutely. And, you know, to watch someone sit with the feelings in, in a group. Especially uncomfortable feelings. Uncomfortable feelings, they, they do pass. You know, yeah. we'll, we have watched people cry, throw temper tantrums, you know, yell and scream, and then the, the feelings pass. But if you numb them, you still have, you have not resolved the feelings. It's like you a haven't pressure cooker. If you keep numbing something, it's like putting balls below the water surface and you can't keep holding those balls down. Eventually they're going to explode. And that's how your feelings will come out one way or another. Correct. Feelings are for feeling and it's okay, right? You're, we're human. We are, we have feelings. We own them. That's okay. Yep. That's okay. It's experience. Sometimes yeah. you've got to keep a sense of humor about it all and just <laughs> enjoy the ride. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's true that. <laughs> Anybody else in your, in your team of, um, of helping people with, uh, besides a doctor, a psychiatrist, a registered dietitian, a therapist, anybody Forgot else? That's what we were talking about. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I love support groups because mm -hmm. people are wired for connection. Yes. And so if you can connect to others who are struggling with something similar, you realize I'm not alone. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so we, I have a free support group Monday nights and it's actually open to anyone in the country because it's on zoom. So it's not just, yeah, it's not just local anymore. It's free. And um, the support group has been very successful just in that way that people are connecting. They have a common bond and they really support each other. And so they realize I am not alone in this struggle. So they can just drop in. They don't have to like show up with a diagnosis. Can it just be somebody that has overeating behavior issues? Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So they can, they um, have to be screened by me and then I'll put them on the, if they're appropriate for group. Not everyone has been appropriate for group. Someone with a very, very diet mentality is not going to be appropriate for group. Um, I'm trying to think someone who's very triggering, right? Has not, is not appropriate for group. We've had that. People. I'm sorry. They might trigger, trigger other people in the group. Correct. And there's certain rules um, with group, like no numbers, no weights, no specifics of food, because that could be very triggering. For example, if someone says, I ate, I binged on a cupcake, right? Someone else might be thinking very shamefully, what? You should see what I binge on, you know? That, that's not a binge, that's a nibble. So we're very careful with our vocabulary and wording and there's, so there's certain rules of group. So anyway, someone has to be screened by me. Um, and then if they're appropriate, I always say try it out a few times and mm -hmm. we'll know if you're a good fit for group or, or if the group is a good fit for you. Yeah, do you have, um, I would imagine for people who are going through binge eating disorder and do feel alone, um, it's important that you reach out to friends and family and also get their support. And do you have ever have friends and family come to your support group? That's a good question. Sometimes spouses, we've had spouses come. We have to be careful. Um, sometimes friends and family are great support, but sometimes we've gotta be really strict with boundaries because friends and family, if they don't understand the illness. Ooh, it can be counterproductive, yes. Yeah, sometimes moms will say, you know, I just had a mom tell her daughter, who's going to New York, you're going to get bullied if you don't get, you know, get in shape more. And um, so sometimes, you know, we have to coach. I think parents and family and friends, they usually mean well, not always, but they usually mean well, but they just don't get it. You know, they just don't understand the illness. So if they're coachable, we'll coach them what to say, what not to say, you know, how to, how to work with a family member who is struggling. So sometimes family members, I'm trying to think if family members, it's really been spouses only, boyfriends and spouses who have come. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think it's important that if you do have binge eating disorder that you don't lead with that and you don't define yourself with that um, because then it becomes like the sole focus of your life and you wanna minimize that part of your life like that's down here so that other great things can come forward in your life. Um, what other tips or advice would you give to somebody struggling with binge eating disorder? Yeah, is a lot of self-compassion, a lot, a lot, a lot of self-compassion that you're human, you're struggling. Food is, it makes sense. I mean, food is- you Gotta have it. Physiological, right. Uh, you have to have it. It's comforting. If you think about like people say comfort foods, mm -hmm. you know, and so it, it, it's, makes sense that people would have a problem with food if they're pre, if they're wired for you know using a um, a coping mechanism mm -hmm. so i would say first be very self compassionate you know learn about the illness learn under truly understand it with compassion um, you know realize the life like i always use the the phrase if i had a magic wand what would your life be like what would it look like you know how would food are good mm -hmm. and then let Summit, yes. And then let's work towards that because mm -hmm. it is possible. It's mm -hmm. recovery is possible for sure. And I always say, here you are, you're doing the work. You showed up. Yes. 
and you keep showing up step by step. If it's, if you can just be 1% better today than you were yesterday, you're making progress and you have um, to look at it that way. You don't expect, you know, overnight and just like you didn't get the eating disorder overnight. It's going to take a process, but the good news is recovery can happen. You can get treated. You don't have to live with binge eating disorder for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you learn so much about yourself when you go through recovery. Mm-hmm. First, you learn you are so resilient, you know, yes. and wow. I, you know, I, I'm always so impressed by um, people who go through recovery. Of like, you know, you're, look how much you're never the person that you were before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if there are setbacks, which there, there yeah. usually are, there always are. Um, and we, we learn from every, every crisis is an opportunity exactly. keep, to keep growing and keep growing and keep changing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what an amazing experience mm-hmm. that you have been through. Look how much you've learned about yourself. Look how much you've grown. Look how much you've changed. Look yes. who you are now. You know, and what, you know, what positives can you take with you? Mm -hmm. And and Um, like you, you, you struggled with an eating disorder and now you're helping people with an eating disorder. So there's, there's always a a purpose and silver lining to even negative things that happen to us. We just have to turn it that way. Absolutely. I think this was, um, if I hadn't have gone through anorexia and bulimia in the eighties, yeah, who knows what I would have been doing now, you know, playing tennis. You'd be a <laughs> <player>. <laughs> um, maybe <laughs> my first career was actually television and radio. I was a TV reporter. Oh, shoot. Then you're a natural here. <laughs> <laughs> I, this I'm passionate, you know, about this, but right. Who, who knows if, if I hadn't gone through that experience. So it, it everything serves a purpose. And there's, it, I always tell my clients, there's a reason you're going through this. Yes. Whether it's to bring the family together. Yes. Or whether it's going to be your future. And a lot of uh, people who go through eating disorders go into this field. Um, yes. There's a purpose, you know, yes. there is a purpose. And there will be a full circle moment for you when you go through it and you'll have an epiphany and understand your struggles and understand overcoming those struggles. And that full circle moment will feel amazing to you. So I encourage you to keep working hard if you do have binge eating disorder because you can recover, you can get treated. For sure, for sure. And recovery is beautiful. It's much, it's a beautiful life on the other side. Yes. And, and if you have recovered from binge eating disorder, if you could leave a description uh, down below and let us know what was some of your turning points, we would love to hear from you and your comments and feedback. Um, do you have any other closing remarks before we close out? Yeah, I think it's so, it's so brave when someone does choose the path of recovery and it's never perfect and it's, it's hard and it's slow. And we always say progress, not perfection. And even when someone is in recovery, you know, are there triggers and are there vulnerabilities? Absolutely. But you learn to either those, those triggers become fleeting thoughts, or you learn to say, wow, I'm, I'm really vulnerable today. What do I need to do to stay in recovery? Because I have so much to lose and I've worked yeah. so hard. So it's, it's never a perfect journey. It's a beautiful journey. It's a journey, um, yeah. but it's never perfect. Yes, and you don't have to do it alone. So 
Thank you, Karen. It was my pleasure. I'm so privileged to have you today here on my YouTube channel. Uh, if you like this content, uh, please like and subscribe and hit the bell so you can be alerted when new content is dropped. So thanks for watching. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Take care. Bye.